This is The Guardian. Today, is Haiti now a failed state? Before we start, I want to let you know that in this episode, we discuss violence and sexual assault. So please take care while you're listening. As of this week, all 11 and a half million people living in Haiti no longer have an elected official representing them. By the start of this year, there were only 10 politicians left in Haiti's parliament and their terms in office were due to come to an end. In this country, in the Caribbean, it's been more than six years since effective elections took place. And so when those 10 senators walked out a few weeks ago, no one replaced them. All that remains is an unelected prime minister who has been unable to stop the rampant gang activity that rules the nation. For the government to collapse might seem extraordinary. But for many Haitians, like the journalist Widlaw Marancourt, it was sadly all too predictable. This event was bittersweet in Haiti. The parliament was not effective, but at the same time, it is yet another testament of the state of democracy today in Haiti. Representative democracy is basically dead. Virtually every democratic institution, from the justice system to parliament, is no longer functioning. The country is close to economic collapse. And the police are outnumbered and outgunned by gangs, violent gangs, who are becoming more and more powerful. They say to people, you can open your business, but you have to pay your fee. You can go out, but it is at your own risk because we can kidnap you, kill you, rape you, and nothing can stop them. So the population is practically by itself in that situation. Being a journalist today is reporting on a war zone, to be honest. It's an increasingly dangerous place for Whitlaw and his colleagues to work. At least seven journalists were killed in Haiti last year. And the country's in the midst of a humanitarian disaster on a scale that's hard to fathom. The World Food Programme says almost half of Haiti's population is facing acute hunger. UNICEF has warned that one in two Haitian children will need aid simply to survive this year. Tens of thousands of people are infected with cholera, a bacterial disease that can and has already in Haiti led to deaths. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, what it's like to live through and report on the escalating crisis in Haiti. Whitlaw, you're the editor-in-chief of Aibo Post, and I know that right now you're in the offices in Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti. But, you know, you've been reporting on a period of 
intense upheaval and violence in this country that you've grown up in. The government has collapsed. What is life like for people where you are right now? Uh, Haiti today is a country which is in a difficult state. And difficult state is an understatement. We have a famine in Haiti. It's a total emergency. Two different United Nations agencies are warning of what they call catastrophic levels of hunger. Uh, 1.8 million people are facing the emergency phase. And then for the first time ever, there are 19,000 people that are facing this catastrophic phase or level five. But at the same time, about 60% of the capital is occupied by gangs. You have a country without elected officials. So these gangs today are the effective leaders of Haiti. Exasperation in the streets of Port-au-Prince. Demonstrators burnt tires, blocked streets. Most of them are police officers, outraged by yet another brutal killing of six of their colleagues on Wednesday. For 15 days in January, we have about 15 police officers who were killed by the gangs and, you know, virtually zero constitutional institutions are up and running effectively. So it is a country in a catastrophic state. Whitlaw, let's take a step back to look at what's happened in Haiti over the past year or so that's brought things to this state. The current leader, Ariel Henry, took power after Jovenel Moïse the president was assassinated in 2021. Can you just remind us of, of what happened to Moïse? The president of Haiti was killed in the intimacy of his bed in the capital. He was the most protected citizen in Haiti, but that did not stop people to come to his house and say, this is a DEA operation. And most of his guards, dozens of Haitians, did little to protect him. 1 high-ranking official told me that these are quote-unquote mercenaries. Um, we're still trying to figure out who they were, who hired them, what's the motive behind all of this. Jovenel Moïse was elected on a platform of change. However, when he became president, accusations quickly emerged of mismanagement of state funds. He was trying to change the constitution of the country. He, according to many experts, had dictatorial uh, tendencies. Moïse was clinging to power, ruling by decree and denying opposition claims that his term had expired. And many mass protests were organized during his term. So he was a deeply contested uh, president when he was killed. So you have a very controversial leader with quite a lot of enemies. You said the people who broke into his home were posing as officers from the U.S. Embassy's Drug Enforcement Agency. Since then, 
More than two dozen Colombian soldiers have been charged in connection with his murder, as well as three men who have dual US Haitian citizenship. And they've got a court hearing set for next week. But their lawyers haven't yet addressed the allegations against them. In the more than a year and a half since Moise was killed, has anyone been convicted? We have some leads, but the main questions, including who are the people who ordered the assassination of the president, are still to be answered. We are on a fifth judge on the case. Some of the judges who dropped it, they say they cannot investigate because they don't feel safe. And at the same time, the head of the country, Mr. Ariel Henry, is himself implicated in the assassination itself. Many reports, including from leading human rights organizations in Haiti, are saying that Ariel Henry had ties with at least one of the folks accused in the assassination of the president. He quickly fired one minister, and he fired also a prosecutor who was trying to have his uh, deposition. Um, and from time to time, you have allegations emerging that the actual government is not really interested in the truth. And many Haitians today lost hope that one day we will know who killed the president and why? I mean, what you're describing, that's, that's, let's just pause on that for a second. It's so extraordinary that the current leader of the country is implicated in the murder of his predecessor. He denies it. Henri took control of the country less than two weeks after Moïse was killed. How has he managed to get to such a powerful position? Ariel Henri is a neurosurgeon. He is well respected in the professional sphere here in Haiti. He occupied multiple positions, including positions of power in past governments. But he is also a deeply contested Prime Minister. He's not an elected official. Ariel Henry was picked a couple of days before the assassination of the president, and he was picked precisely, some people will tell you, against the will of the president. But the international community, and I'm talking mainly about the United States, put its weight on the balance. Mm. The support they give to Ariel Henry who is in power for more than a year. And today, nobody knows when he will leave power. He doesn't have a clear mandate. And there is not a lot of indications that the process to go to elections in this country is going forward. And these police officers, many of them are protesting the prime minister because they say his governmentship is not effective, doesn't have a plan. We need a revolution if President Ariel Henry signs a pact with the bandits. A lot of police are dead, and he didn't say anything. He didn't even tweet about the policeman who died. 
We are in the streets to fight for our brothers and sisters who are victimized by the gangs. Within this context, you know, as you've mentioned, the gangs are able to gain power. Um, and we'll go into, into that in more detail uh, in a bit. But I just want to understand kind of broadly, what kind of power are the gangs able to have over the country at the moment, given that you have a contested leader and no effective government sitting around him? The gangs are more powerful than ever. When they go to a place, they seek total control. And these gangs have more guns and ammunition than the police officers, than the army. And they control large swaths of territory and they are hungry for more. Haiti is on the verge of the abyss. Now that's the language the United Nations is now using as heavily armed gangs expand their control of the country. Arguably, one of the most lucrative business today in Haiti is the kidnapping business. Oh my gosh. You have almost every month dozens and sometimes hundreds of people from poor people, people selling things on the streets, all the way to rich people in the rich neighborhoods. Ralph Senecal runs an ambulance service. He has done so for almost three decades. This October, he was kidnapped. 17 days, 17 days with my hand tied, with my shoelaces. They won $1 million from the US. That was the asking price. And these gangs, they are not stopping there. They are moving their operations from the capital of Port-au-Prince to the other cities. I'm talking about Cap Haitian. Mm. I'm talking about Jeremy, my hometown. When I was a kid, having guns and being attacked by gang members was not a thing. But recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Jeremy and my parents were telling me, don't go out at night because you might be attacked. It says a lot mm. about how this country transitioned from relatively a quiet place, especially outside of the capital, to a place where increasingly trauma and violence is an ever-present to the lives of everybody. Gang warfare often erupts here in broad daylight. Why not? Gunmen are in league with corrupt politicians and have some police on the payroll. There are over a hundred armed groups in the city, instilling fear and silence. The biggest gang in Haiti today is the G9 Coalition, which is a gang led by Jimmy Cherizier. More commonly known by his childhood nickname, Barbecue. He is now the leader of a powerful confederation of gangs, which controls much of Port-au-Prince and its suburbs. Jimmy Cherizier was a police officer. He was implicated in 2018 in a massacre that killed dozens of people in a slum in Port-au-Prince. And because he refused to answer questions about his implication, he took its guns and became a gang leader. And the gangs have coalitions, they have partnerships among them to terrorize the population. For instance, the road that brings you to the north of the country is controlled by multiple gangs. 
And in mid-September, gangs seized the largest fuel terminal and are holding hostage 70% of Haiti's fuel. And last year, this gang decided no fuel will be distributed in the country. Barbecue taunted authorities and rallied supporters. And nobody could stop them. We are going to get through into this oil terminal when we are dead. To the Haitian people, if it's true that we need to live as real human beings and for other nations to respect us, man your barricades. And for many weeks, the ports would not function. So you have containers with food, with assistance, humanitarian assistance, not being able to be delivered to the people in need. Yeah, and this is happening while there's a cholera outbreak in the country. About 25,000 people have been infected with it and about 500 people have died. What's the situation at the moment with people trying to get medical help? A couple of days back, that is an example that is telling. The Médecins Sans Frontières were forced to close a hospital that they had in Carrefour because gang leaders get inside, took a patient and killed him um, in the hospital. The doctors do not feel safe to go and walk there. And tens of thousands of people are impacted by the decision to close this hospital and you have many doctors fleeing this country. Haiti have some of the highest brain drain in the Caribbean. Uh, today, we are investing millions of dollars to train doctors, but many of them today are in the U.S. and in Canada because they don't feel safe, because they cannot walk in their own country. And I've read that another tactic they're using to terrorise people, and this is sadly predictable, is raping women. I'm just imagining it's so, so scary to just be out as a woman there at the moment. Yes, it is indeed. Last year, in December, in Aibo Post, we received at least two dozen victims of sexual violence who came uh, mainly from Cité Soleil, which is the biggest slum in Haiti. And I received testimonies of women who said, my husband was killed and they came to my house and abused me, abused my kid. And now I have to flee to save my own life. Mm. And I am in the streets. I personally talked to multiple human rights organizations, feminist organizations, and all of them are telling me that they are overwhelmed today by the amounts of women who are victims of rape, mutilation, and sometimes killings by the gangs. These powerful individuals with deep ties to political actors and including also people in the economic sector. If you are living in an area, they control 
they have ultimate power over your body, over your life, and over every aspect of your existence. And this is one thing that I always come back to it. It's the sheer power of these women's testimonies, is the hope, the undefeated way they see life. I've talked to women who had the husband killed, at least one of their kids being killed, and they say, I'm looking for a way to take care of the kid that I have left because they believe in the future. They believe that this kid can go out and become something, become anyone that is not resembling the perpetrators they were the victims of. So these gangs are brutally assaulting people, kidnapping, blocking the ports and the roads. They're stopping humanitarian aid getting to the people who need it. It's very clear that the police have lost control. So, you know, in a situation like this, you would expect the army to be coming in and trying to combat these gangs. Is that happening? Well, the army's presence in Haiti today is minimum. It is minimum because it was disbanded in 1995 by... They got rid of the army. Yes, correct, correct. The army was implicated in coup d'etat and multiple abuses of power that, you know, gave people pause about the institution. When the U.S. occupied the country a hundred years ago, it was used to suppress a nationalist insurgency. Later, dictators Francois and Duval de Vallier used it to oppress popular dissent. I grew up without an army uh, in Haiti all the way to 2017, when this force was resuscitated. Late last year, Haitian President Jovenel Moïse announced that his country, the poorest in the Caribbean, would build a brand new army. But it was a decision that was controversial because of the past. And today, today, the army lacks the same things that the Haitian police lacks. It lacks training, it lacks equipment. They are more a symbolic institution than one that has firepower. I can give an anecdote that shows the state of the army in Haiti. Mm. I was personally attacked in Port-au-Prince, right in front of Abel Post, our newsroom. People stole my car, my equipment, and my passport and everything. Mm. One year later, I retrieved my car in the streets of Port-au-Prince. I called the police immediately. And when the police stopped the car, guess who was driving it? was someone actively in the army today. Whitlaw, we've been speaking about what's happening in Haiti right now, but I think you can only really understand that by looking further back into the country's history. Let's not forget that Haiti was the first country in the Caribbean to liberate itself from colonial oppression, you know, from the French in this case. And that happened in 1804. 
This is a country with a proud history of resistance. But people there are still feeling the impacts of that oppression, not least the economic impacts. Correct. Since Haiti took its independence, the country faced blockades after blockades, oppositions after oppositions, and many high powerful countries, including France, and including actually the United States, had a stake in this business. Haiti likes to call itself the Pearl of the Antilles. It had surely been that for the French, said to be the richest, the most prosperous colony in all the world. Coffee and sugar, mahogany and molasses were the treasures. And they took this young country as a bad apple, as a bad example of what should not, you know, happen. And during the 19th century, France sent soldiers to Haiti with a threat. And they asked Haiti to pay what they call reparations that this country did not have the means to pay. But there was also the debt that Haiti had to contract to pay the debt. And according to economists, the money that Haiti paid to the French past masters can be estimated from 20 to 115 billions of dollars today. And this is money that we did not use to pave the roads, to erect schools, to inject in the economy. And economists that the New York Times talked to said, Haiti today would have been on the same economic path as countries like the Dominican Republic. Was it not for this debt? And then in 1915, United States Marines land in Haiti to battle Haitian bandits, threatening destruction of American properties. And native bandits quickly head for the hills. And in 1915, the U.S. came and occupied Haiti for many years. The economy of the country was controlled by the U.S. in this time. And from 1957 to 1986, the U.S. supported the Haitian dictatorship. During the 14 years that Papadoc was in the palace in Port-au-Prince, tales of savagery there became a commonplace. His secret police imposed a rule as fearful as any in the long and bloody history of Haiti. And this is a dictatorship that killed thousands of Haitians. So Haiti today is a byproduct of bad government of state leaders without vision and who cares more about the pockets than the greater good. But at the same time, it is important to not forget the long story of blockades, of interventions that brings the country to the dire situation that it is right now. And I would note that according to the Justice Department of the United States, most guns that we have right now in the criminal business in Haiti can be traced from the U.S. And this firepower is unprecedented. Coming up, what could Haiti's neighbours do to help the country out of this crisis? And would Haitians accept it?
Whitlaw, Haiti is in crisis. There's no other way to put it. And I know the leaders of the US and Canada, among others, have been talking about whether to send assistance. Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, sent military aircraft out there earlier this week. The deteriorating humanitarian crisis in Haiti has prompted Canada to deploy one of its military planes. It'll provide surveillance and intelligence to help disrupt the activities of gangs. Given the history of interventions and interference in Haiti that you've explained, what do you think most Haitians want right now? Would they accept aid from other countries? Well, it is no question today that Haitians want aid. The catastrophic level of hunger that we are witnessing requires some type of assistance. But this is in the short term. In the long term, the country needs development. The country needs food independence. Haitians need to take their destiny into their own hands. The country needs election. And to do just that, it is necessary for Haitian people to have a sit at the table. And if you listen closely, and this is from my own reporting, I'm seeing a deep divide. You have on one side, many Haitians will tell you that the international interventions do not work. One example that people will take uh, regularly is the 2010 cholera in Haiti Mm. that was bringing actually by UN soldiers who were part of a mission to pacify Haiti. Several scientific studies point to this UN base as the place where cholera was introduced to Haiti. The unit of Nepalese soldiers suspected of carrying the bacteria have been quietly sent home. About 10,000 Haitians were killed, and some experts put it more than one million people were infected by Mm. the disease. So many Haitians will tell you that instead of a military intervention, what we do need is an assistance to the Haitian National Police so they can fight back against the gangs. But at the same time, you have other people who tell you that to bring about elections quickly, a military intervention will be helpful, even if it's an intervention that is not going to resolve the structural problems that Haiti is facing. If people want to leave the country, do they seem to have any options to do that at the moment? Haitians living Haiti is an old story. And today, thousands of Haitians are fleeing Haiti and fleeing the violence. Off the coast of southern Florida, nearly 200 men, women and children packed onto the deck of a small sailboat. This intercept, the latest in what has been a record year. More than 6,000 Haitians stopped at sea since October, the highest such number in two decades. The main destination is the United States. Many more making the dangerous journey on foot. Roughly 12,000 Haitians reaching Del Rio, Texas last fall, packed under a bridge for days before being sent home. But the administrations sent them back. I talked to some of the deportees. They said they were stunned by the lack of humanity they received in custody in the U.S. while they were being sent back. I'm hearing that 
kids, some of them were in custody without access to food, clean water, and to take a bath and ship back to Haiti. Many of them do not have family in Haiti. And if you talk to experts, they will tell you, is this a testament of how black people are treated in the U.S. today? Haitians are not accepted. No one chooses to live this way with their children, their parents. These people are suffering every single day. There's a reason why they are here, and there's a reason why they cling to some hope, because they have nothing to go back to. There is a program that was announced and is ongoing in January that should help about 30,000 people from Haiti and also in Cuba and other countries to go to the U.S. But the level of violence and the hunger and the turmoil inside of Haiti is not stopping Haitians to try to leave and to go elsewhere. Whitlaw, what's it like trying to do your job right now? <laughs> Last year was the most deadly year for Haitian journalists. Many of my colleagues were killed doing the job by the gangs. We were hard the freedom of speech that is a legacy of the fight, you know, from the dictatorship that we are enjoying today. But exercising this freedom of being able to report is at your own cost because the power of the gangs makes it more and more difficult mm -hmm. to do your job today. And everyone, Everyone can be killed. It is so easy to be killed in Haiti today. And there will be zero accountability. So if you do this job, you do it because you care. You do it because you believe in the power of story to shape the reality. You believe that telling truthful stories, bringing narratives, that are embracing the complexity of Haiti's reality can have an impact in people's lives today and in the future. And Whitlaw, amidst everything you've described, you're still living there and you're reporting every day and you're speaking to people who are staying and who are getting on with their lives. And I suppose what I'd like to understand is What's the kind of, like, what's the spirit that's keeping people going? Uh, the Nigerian author, Shimamanda Nguziadzici, speaks about the danger of single stories. Mm. Single stories are reductive because they don't render the completeness of any realities when you talk about countries, when you talk about people. The story that we are telling today about Haiti is a story of mass migration. It's a story of hunger. It's a story of insecurity. But I am always amazed by 
how many Haitian professionals who have a visa, who could leave, but would choose to stay in the country and wants to change it. So Haitian people are not hopeless. Um, when you talk to people selling things in the streets, you will always be amazed by the hope, by the fact that many of them believe that it is worth fighting. It is worth waking up every morning and do what you're doing because they believe in the Haiti of tomorrow. Whitlaw, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you. That was Widlaw Merencourt, editor-in-chief of Aibo Post in Haiti. You can follow his reporting on Twitter at Widlaw. Thank you so much to him. This episode was produced by Rose de Larabiti and Eva Krisiak. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo and the executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.